Morning, everyone. Hopefully you can hear me loud and clear. It'll be too loud. So, um, thank you, uh, Johnny and the band. And uh, we will have more opportunity later to respond in singing as we um, share in this meal that's set before us together. A few weeks ago, Barry um, done a talk on baptism, and he explained to us that baptism just didn't pop out of thin air. It has a context, and a historical context we read, and we, he directed us back to the Old Testament and to the ceremonial washings, to the priestly sacrificial system, and to John the baptizer. Baptism was part of what God was doing, if you like. It wasn't just born out of thin air. It had a context. And uh, all, all of the ceremonial washings, all of the baptisms, even John's baptism of repentance, they weren't the thing, but they pointed towards the thing. John's baptism of repentance was a forerunner, even of, of a prototype, if you like, of what we call Christian baptism. And living on this side of the resurrection, our understanding of baptism is much fuller, and through the revelation of what God has revealed in His Word, uh, it is a much richer understanding of what baptism is, this beautiful act of obedience, and this pledge of allegiance, and this act of identifying with our Lord Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection. And I suppose the big point for me in that whole piece is that all of the foreshadowing, all of the pictures, all of the types all of the narratives that we read about in Scripture, they all find their ultimate meaning and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Those of us who have had the blessing of uh, being part of the mid-sized group looking at reading Christ, reading Jesus and the Psalms, will all attest to the blessing it is to open Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, open Scripture and see Christ in its pages and to see what He has done, fulfilled, fulfilled, uh, God's wisdom is indeed profound. We're going to move past John the baptizer, but one thing that st stood out to me on this, this whole theme, this whole topic of, of uh, communion, is that whenever John, the one who was sent ahead of Christ, the one who was preparing the way, whenever he sees Christ, he announces and he proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. This is an illusion, of course. It's not a, it's not, there's nothing cryptic here. This is John linking Jesus to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the covenant of which he was a part of, and also, I think, very explicitly to the story of the Passover and the Passover Lamb. And we will return to that later. But our subject, our subject is not so much John the Baptist or what he had to say about about Jesus this morning as much as it is about communion, this meal, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, the breaking of bread, the love feast, if you want to throw some Greek in there, the agape feast, the Eucharist, Thanksgiving meal. There's lots of names for what this uh, is that we are going to partake and share of uh, this morning. There's lots of names for it, and each one highlights a different element, a different facet, if you like, of this beautiful diamond that is communion. But where does this meal come from? Where does it find its origins? Is it like uh, 
I believe it's like baptism where we can look at Scripture from beginning to end and we can see significant things that God says that God is doing around food, around eating, around eating together, around feasting. And that should shape and inform us on how we view this meal. Eating is a fundamental human experience. We all eat every day, usually. We eat to fuel our bodies, to give us energy, to give us sustenance, to give us recovery if we're sick. We need food. Our bodies need food. But the answer to the question, why do we eat, isn't only answered by that sort of biological, materialistic uh, answer. Eating is more than just ingesting food and consuming it into our bodies, food and fluids, whatever that might be, food and drink. It's often much, much more than that. And what, we want, what I want to do this morning is to show you from Scripture, we're going to take broad brushstrokes because I have a limited, limited time, broad brushstrokes and try and convince you and show you from the Bible that eating is much more than just eating. Eating is much more than simply the act of ingesting food. So let's start casting your minds back to the very beginning, back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were put in the garden and God gave them something to eat, food. Every green plant and fruit from all the trees, He provided for them richly and they walked in perfect fellowship with the Lord their God in the garden with the full provision that God had set forth. We know that the story uh, takes a devastating turn when sin and rebellion enters into the creation. In Genesis 3:22, the Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of Eden, east of the Garden of Eden, to guard the way to the tree of life. Fascinating, a tree of life. We see the tree of life pop up again in the book of Revelation, where it tells us that the redeemed will eat of its fruit and whose leaves will be used for the healing of the nations. Now, much, there's, there's much that could be said, meditate upon this tree of life. But for me, the big thing is that what was symbolized here by Adam and Eve being ejected from the Garden of Eden and being barred access to this tree of life is, of, of course, the big point is that their fellowship and their relationship with God was dramatically altered by the incoming of sin into the creation. The relationship between the Creator and the creature had sadly uh, been changed in a significant way. The creation had been subject to a curse, and Adam and Eve could no longer walk in that perfect, unadulterated fellowship with God in the garden. And that's often how I think of it, but think of it like this. Not only could Adam and Eve no longer walk with God in the garden in perfect fellowship, they no longer could eat in the perfect holy presence of God. Eating in the presence of God. This is something that Adam and Eve would have enjoyed and something that is foretold about what the future of the church looks like. Eating in God's presence. What else 
can we see from Scripture? These are significant, and they're significant in a way that maybe we uh, can relate to. We can relate to meals being a significant part of the social fabric. We get together with family, we get together with friends to celebrate things, marriages, uh, you know, births of children, whatever it might be. They're significant events. And in the um, context of, of uh, the ancient Near East, meals were a significant and a ratifying part of making covenants. What is a covenant? Again, we could spend all day talking about that rich subject. A covenant in the simplest sense is an agreement between two parties, and there can be, can be stipulations and obligations, and uh, it can be between people, and it can also be between God and a person, or God and a nation. And um, we see that meals are a part of that as we read Israel's story, as we read the accounts in Genesis and elsewhere. We see that meals and covenants, they sort of go together um, in many, many instances. And we also see more broadly in the worship life of Israel that meals and feasting are a significant part of what God uh, ordained in His law. So let me give you a few examples uh, very briefly. And I encourage you to go and look at these for yourself. Test and see if what I'm saying is in the Scriptures. But if you think of the covenant with Abraham, that's a covenant that we read about in Genesis chapter 12, 3 to 22. It's sort of spread out and there's reiterations, maybe not the right word. There's repetitions of that covenant that God is making with Abraham that he would bless him and he would give him a seed, that he would multiply his descendants and that the nations would be blessed through his seed. And in, in Genesis chapter 18, we have this strange and mysterious encounter of three visitors who come to see Abraham. And Abraham, and he recruits his wife desperately to go and make some bread. He, he slaughters an animal, and he prepares a meal or a feast for these three guests. And profoundly, these guests, in some way, one of them or other, I don't, there's a mysterious element, a strangeness to this account, but it's clear from reading it that Abraham is serving the Lord God here. There's a meal with the Lord, and there's also a sense in which this comes into Abraham's many um, interactions with God, many of these covenant-making, covenant-ratifying experiences that this meal could be said to go alongside that covenant. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 26 to 33, Isaac and Abimelech, they cut a covenant together, and that involves a feast. In Genesis chapter 31, uh, verse 41 to 54, similarly, Jacob and Laban, they cut a covenant to repair a breach of trust that they've had between them, and that's very interesting. There's an offense, there's a breach of trust, and there's a a peace treaty, a covenant made between them. You can read the story of Jacob and Laban, a, a strange Uh, strange tale indeed, but the point is that there was a sacrifice and there was a meal to to ratify, to validate that that covenant, that agreement. A point that sticks out to me from that story is that those who eat eat together are at peace with each other. They're at one with each other. Um, We don't eat with our enemies. Of course, when we think of that in light of the new covenant, you might say something different, but indeed, Eating is a symbol of being at one with each other. It's a symbol of being united and being at peace and having offenses dealt with to eat around a common meal and a common table. 
We have a very significant meal in uh, Exodus chapter 12, uh, which was instituted as a feast and, uh, in the calendar of Israel, the Passover. I would imagine most of us are fairly familiar with that hugely significant meal and how in light of Jesus and his resurrection and his death, it shines an illuminating light on what God was doing um, all those years ago in Israel. During that meal, the children of Israel, they sacrifice a lamb and the angel of the Lord passes over uh, the households that have the blood on their, their doorpost, on their lintel, and the firstborn sons who are not covered, if you like, who are not under that blood of the lamb, are slain. God passes over when he, the angel of the Lord passes over when he sees the blood. But there's a meal, there's a partaking together and a meal of that sacrificed substitutionary lamb who died in the place, if you like, of that firstborn. Very significant. An exodus at the covenant ceremony where the in Sinai, where the, the law was given to Moses, the Mosaic covenant, if you like, there's a f- fascinating verse in Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. It says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. And verse 11, God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank pretty amazing that they saw God, they were in His presence, and they ate and drank together. We see sacrifice and feasting as a pattern as we read Israel's story, uh, and we look at her feasts, we look at her worship calendar, if you like. Um, It's scheduled around feasts. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that the whole point of the um, the Mosaic law given to Israel, the end goal was fellowship with God and feasting with God. Eating is not just eating. Eating is an act of identification and an act of allegiance. And you can see here being foreshadowed in what God is doing in Israel. He's restoring to Israel what Adam and Eve had lost fellowship with God and eating in His presence. Did you ever think about it like that? That is what God is restoring. He's foreshadowing. He's pointing towards something. Much more could be said in that vein, and um, it would be improper of me to not give credit to a, a pastor in America, David Schrock, who has a blog article entitled, The Lord's Supper and a Biblical Theology of Feasting. If you Google that, The Lord's Supper and a Biblical Theology of Feasting, you'll find that article. I find that extremely helpful. It's not a big article. It's very rich and dense. And uh, much of what I've said to this point, and and he he says a lot more, um, was shaped by that, and I'm thankful for it. But in preparing this talk, I was a bit torn about which direction uh, to go uh, and what follows. Um, originally, I was going to spend a significant amount of time in John chapter 6. And for those of you who are familiar with that chapter, you'll know why. And I would encourage you to read, read that chapter. Um, I then had come across other things that I felt led to, sh- to share as well, but I couldn't get away from John chapter 6. So you're going to get two messages. <laughs> 
John chapter 6. Open your Bible if you have one or your app. We're going to kind of speed through this. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but I, feel, I felt led and that this is for someone today or for us today. Um, this account in John chapter 6 that we're going to look at comes after the famous feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And obviously food and eating, very much central to the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. Um, and the discourse that follows is uh, it's one of my favorite, actually, in, in the Gospels. Um, Jesus proclaims some radical and offensive things and confusing things to his listeners. In verse 35 and 48, he says, I am the bread of life. In verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus testifies that the manna that the Israelites received in, the, in their wilderness wanderings was not the thing, but rather he is the bread of life. He is the bread of God. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 33. He also says, verse 54, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And the whole discourse is offensive. It's confusing to the Jews that are listening. What does Jesus mean? And, and if he does mean what he's saying, it's offensive. It's blasphemous. Jesus is claiming that he came down from heaven. He's claiming that eternal life is given to those who will drink, who will eat his flesh and drink his blood. Not to mention the offensive and humbling truth that no one comes to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's no wonder that John records for us in verse 66 that after this discourse, from that moment on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. And coming into what I think is the climax of this whole scene, Jesus asks the penetrating question to his to the twelve, to his disciples. You don't want to go away too, do you? Verse 67. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Maybe that is a question for someone here this morning that Jesus is asking. You don't want to go away too, do you? Maybe recently you have experienced some hurtful, heavy, painful things in your life. Or maybe the claims of Jesus have got offensively real in your life. What we read in Scripture has become real to us. It's become revealed to us, the truth of it. Maybe you've witnessed someone close to you or someone you know who they've abandoned ship They've walked away from Jesus. They're no longer following him. There's still hope for such a person. But the question is, what about you here this morning? What about you here in this room or for you listening online or after the fact? What about you? You don't go, want to go away too, do you? Well, it's, it's my prayer. Much could be said from this passage about in relation to, to communion, but what I felt the Lord challenging me about was Peter's response, Lord, to whom else, to who else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. May that be our response this morning. Where else will we go? 
There is no one else to go to. He has the words of eternal life. He is our Lord. That's message number one. (laughs) And the other one is only slightly longer. You'll be glad to hear. So, communion. I wanted to try and answer the questions, what is it? What's it for? Why do we do it? Who's it for? Those sort of questions. And I have four headings that will hopefully allow us to remember and grab on to some of these points around this, this communion meal. And they are that communion is about remembrance. It's a retelling. It's a representation. And it's a re-proclamation. And the last one could have been proclamation, but it needed to have R in it. So it's re-proclamation. And that works equally well. Remembrance, retelling, representation, which is another way of saying representation, but it's maybe slightly different, and re-proclamation. So communion is remembrance. This one is hopefully very obvious. (laughs) Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And I'm always struck by the the practicality uh, and the wisdom of God that he gives us something physical, he gives us something real. He doesn't simply say, remember me, which would be enough in itself just intellectually to remember, and he does call us to do that. But he says, remember me in this act by doing this thing. And he utilizes these common elements, these common everyday things, bread and wine. We can see it, we can touch it, we can smell it, we can taste it, and we can eat it. I don't know about you, I would imagine it's the case that all of us need to remember what Jesus has done. We all need reminded what he has accomplished for us. I know that in my life, I'm prone to forgetting what Christ has done. I'm prone to forgetting what it cost God. I'm prone to forgetting the weight and the seriousness of sin. And this meal reminds me of that. But I'm also prone to forgetting and minimizing the radical grace and love of God towards us. And this meal reminds us of that as well. And I'm glad that this morning, as a church family, as his people, we get to share in this meal together to remember what he has done for me, for you, for us. That's, I think the remembering is not only um, looking back, if you like, but there is a remembering forward. There's a future dimension in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and those chapters uh, before and after, good to have a read of those and see uh, the context of this meal worked out in a, a, another local church in the first century. But Paul calls us to remember this meal until he comes. So we are to remember that Christ has died at Calvary. We remember that historic act. But we're also to remember that he will come again. And those two things aren't in a conflict with each other. This present table is pointing towards another table. This present meal is pointing towards another meal. A table and a meal in which the bridegroom, that is Jesus, and his bride, the church, that's us if you're in Christ, will be wed together in glory. There will be a great marriage ceremony accompanied with a great marriage feast 
the marriage feast or marriage supper of the Lamb. You can read about that in the, 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 the last chapters of Revelation, Revelation 19, 20, 21. We can read of this wonderful marriage imagery to do with Christ and His church. And that is something we are to remember as we eat this meal too, because we're doing it until He comes. It's pointing towards something that will come, much like if you're married here this morning, if you have a husband and wife, that is also until He comes. That is a picture of something greater. It is not the ultimate thing. It's pointing towards the ultimate thing, which is the marriage of Christ and His church. So, mar- so communion is about remembrance. Communion is also a retelling. The act of eating this meal together is a drama being unfolded before us. It's telling us something. And uh, one commentator I read this week called Communion, the gospel made edible. And I really like that. Um, Think of what we do. We break bread. We drink wine. It's shared amongst us. And there's many, many things that we can meditate and ponder upon the the wine, it's not just red for, because that's what they had. It, it symbolizes blood. It's telling us something. And we can, there's a rich, rich imagery and retelling as we take this uh, meal together. Consider the um, disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, when were their eyes opened to the truth that they were with the Lord? It was in the breaking of the bread. And the reason that our hearts not burn within us prior to that point, what was it? Well, the breaking of the bread was what the Holy Spirit used to open their eyes to the reality of who they they were. It was the retelling of that common shared experience and that story that they had been part of. Communion is remembrance. Communion is a retelling. Communion is a re-presentation. Presentation is the giving of something to someone. Okay, and there's been much controversy and debate in the history of the church about the reality or the substance of what this bread is or what it becomes, this wine, what it is and what it becomes when we partake of it together. And not all of that controversy is uh, unjustified. I believe that those are things that we should wrestle with and question and search the Scriptures for, and we should do so in the bond of unity and peace and the spirit that Christ has given us. But much of the drama is over Christ's initiatory words, um, this is my body, this is my blood. And again, in in John chapter 6, when Jesus talks about eating his uh, flesh and drinking his blood, what did he mean? Well, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to tell you to go and think about these things. But I think it's not too uncontroversial to say and we can be in agreement that before us here, we have a representation of who Christ is and what he has done for us. When we look at this table and we look at these, uh, this bread and wine, our eyes should be directed towards Jesus. Our minds should be directed towards the one who this uh, symbolizes. And in a mysterious and inexplicable way, when we share in this meal together, we are sharing in the body and blood of Christ. We're sharing in what he has done for us and who he is. He is in us and we are in him. By faith, of course, this is the the mystery of uh, 
our faith, that we are linked to Christ, that we have union with him by faith, and we partake of this meal together by faith. Finally, re-proclamation. I could have said proclamation, but we do it over and over again, so it could be re-proclamation. 1 Corinthians 11:26. I alluded to it earlier. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To proclaim is to declare or announce something publicly, clearly, emphatically. And this is what we're doing when we partake of this meal. We are proclaiming that Christ has died. We're proclaiming that Christ is Lord. We're proclaiming that He is our sacrifice, that He is our hope, that He is the one who we have faith in. He is ours and we are His. And much like baptism, which is also a public uh, proclamation, if you like, a a public display of being uh, united to Christ and pledging allegiance to Jesus and being found in Him, this meal is public as well. It's public in the sense that we're doing it here and others can join us who maybe as yet can't share in the meal. And we're proclaiming to anyone here in this room today who doesn't yet know Jesus that Jesus has died. Jesus is Lord. This is what we're proclaiming. And for anyone listening and for anyone who, who will come in from outside, but much more than just, maybe much more equally, as much as this is a public proclamation, a physical proclamation, it's also a spiritual proclamation. The same could be said of baptism. We are proclaiming something in the spiritual realm. We're making a declaration of allegiance to Jesus. We're claiming Christ as our Lord. This meal is not something that we merely uh, do together, a meal in and of itself. This meal shapes and forms our identity, who we are as his church. A message that I heard over a decade ago said it like this many, many times during the message to get the point across. This is is what we do, and this is who we are. This meal shapes us. It shapes who we are. It's identity forming and identity establishing. If you take this meal away, I argue that we can no longer be the church. We no longer are the church. That is how central and how important this meal is that we share in together. So it's a spiritual declaration. That means as we, read, uh, as we take this meal, we share it together, there's many scriptures uh, that we can be drawn to that, this is, that add to this proclamation. Add is not the right word. Go alongside. Uh, one that was led to my mind was uh, Colossians 2, which reads, The f- entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. That's our proclamation. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. He's taken it away 
by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. That's what we are proclaiming this morning. That's what we are declaring this morning, that Christ is Lord, that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities, that he has taken the certificate of debt, the, the, the debt of sin that was on my account, and it's been nailed to the cross, dealt with, gone, trespasses forgiven. This is good news. That's good news. This is a good news announcement of what he has done. Shortly, we are going to actually partake of this meal together. And this is something that uh, we believe should be done in physical presence with each other, sharing in this common bread uh, and wine set before us. So if you, if you have been joining with us online up until this point or you're, you're listening afterwards, thank you very much uh, for doing so. Um, but we're going to be uh, ending the live stream at this point. So this is the family meal. It's the ongoing rite of the new covenant. This means that if you are a member of the new covenant family of God, you are a member by faith of the church, then this table is set for you. Whether you're visiting with us or whether you're part of us, if you're in Christ, this table is set for you. Coming to the table is a means to encourage faith and renew our commitment rather than a reward for faith achieved. Let me say that again. Coming to this table is a means to encourage faith and to renew our commitment rather than a reward for faith achieved. We do not make ourselves worthy to partake of this meal. Christ is worthy. His grace is on display here this morning. However, it should also be said to be true to Scripture and Revelation that it would be contrary to Christ if we were to partake of this meal as one who is walking in unrepentance and disunity towards Him, that is Jesus, and towards His body, the church. For some of you here this morning, perhaps you've partaken of this meal um, as one who did not recognize and lay hold of all uh, everything that it represents by faith. It was a ritual. It's something that you've done thoughtlessly or ritualistically. You, don't, you haven't taken this meal as someone who by faith is united to Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. This table can be for you by faith. As I say, this is not a table we come to when we've achieved a certain level or we've walked a certain walk. This is a, a table that represents all that Christ has accomplished for us, which is ours by faith. Just invite Johnny and the band um, to come up again. Uh, how this is going to work this morning is that uh, Hannah and a team of people are going to uh, kindly uh, serve out the bread and the wine. And um, I'm going to give thanks for the bread and wine, and Johnny and the guys are going to lead us in some songs that direct our eyes uh, and focus and meditate our minds on what we're about to do. Um, what I would say is, 
I love the imagery of one bread that is broken and one cup that is shared. We don't have one cup this morning. We have multiple little tiny cups. And to try and uh, signify and symbolize the unity that we have in Christ, when you receive the bread and the wine, wait until everyone has received it from the first till the last. And as a symbol of our unity, we're going to drink the wine together. So feel free to eat the bread. And at a time when it's all distributed, uh, Johnny will uh, lead us in the, the drinking of the cup just to symbolize the unity that we are all of Christ, the one Lord. We're all in his church by faith. So let's pray.